you're new here, um, don't, um, don't feel like you've missed something when I say this, but we, we are in the middle of an of a ongoing series of talks about the book of Acts, which is the fifth book of the New Testament. And what we're doing with these talks is we're trying to figure out what the church is um, because we're, uh, it can be a little confusing to figure out what the church is supposed to be. Because what the church has become or what it's known for is not the church we find in the New Testament sometimes. And I think the common um, way of thinking about the church is that it's organized religion. It's just one more organized religion in the world. But when you look at the, the church or the gospel of Jesus, it really, doesn't, um, it really doesn't line up with religion. Gospel and religion seem diametrically opposed. And so if that's the case, then what should the church be? And how can we, as we begin to look ahead after our first two years are behind us and looking ahead to our next two years or five years or 25 years, like what do we want to become as a church? How can we reflect the kind of church Jesus really came to start? And so that's the idea with semi-organized love. Um, that's just a phrase we think of when we think of what the church should be. Um, take out your study guides now, and, and uh, you can follow along with me. Those are uh, handy little guides if you uh, want to see kind of how much further we've got to go in this sermon. Sometimes it's helpful to have a finish line to look at. And uh, you can also see the uh, scripture passages and things from today. We've got um, three different readings we're really going to look at. I was thinking this week about a time that um, Pastor Gio, uh, who for those who are new here, Pastor Gio and I are, are the wife and husband team, uh, of co-pastors here, and we've been together since we were 18, we got married at 20. When we were 22 years old, we went to visit a church together in St. Louis, Missouri. We were living in Kansas City, so we drove across the state four hours uh, to go to this church that was growing like crazy, and we had heard about it. It was a big, fancy church in a big, fancy part of town of St. Louis, and, um, and, and when we got there half an hour early, uh, we realized pretty quickly that uh, we were not dressed for the occasion. Uh, have you ever been there? you ever been to a place where you weren't dressed for the occasion? Uh, I was wearing cargo pants, for example. Uh, kids, if you don't know what those are, you can ask your parents. There was a time when cargo pants were popular, I, I think. I don't know. I wore them. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so we walked around this campus for 20 minutes trying to find the sanctuary because we were lost. Sometimes big churches can be a little confusing when you walk around them. Can I get an amen? Uh, <laughs> some people get lost on this campus sometimes, uh, especially with all the construction and everything. Uh, we finally found the sanctuary and took our seats. It was two huge banks of pews. And we took our seats on the left side, you know, from the back, left side toward the back in a pew and waited for the service to start. The organ was playing the prelude, and perfectly nice people were walking in. The people that you would probably expect if I asked you what kinds of people went to that big fancy church we visited when we were 22 years old. Um, Well-adjusted, well-dressed, white-collar-looking folks. They looked perfectly pleasant and polite, and they uh, were mostly older people, although there were some young families that were scattered throughout the congregation as well. And just as the service was about to begin, three sweet old ladies walked up to our pew and they stopped at the end of our pew. And they looked at us with hatred in their eyes. And they were judging us. I thought it was the cargo pants. But in retrospect, I think we were sitting in their pew. 
And have you ever sat in someone's pew before? Have you ever sat in a sweet old lady's pew before? Have you ever seen how quickly she becomes not as sweet as you thought that she was? We were in their pew. And so they just took some steps forward and glared at us with the evil eye. And then they took the seat in the pew in front of us. And, of course, the first thing that the preacher did when he started the service is the thing everyone loves when you visit a church. Turn to your neighbor and greet your neighbor. Pass the peace. Everyone loves that, right? Um, we used to do that at the first, very first thing in our service. We'd spend five minutes. We were in the gym. We'd spend five minutes greeting our neighbors. And sure enough, in about six weeks, everybody showed up five minutes late for every single service because nobody <laughs> likes that part of the service. And I wasn't sure anybody was going to share the peace with us. You know, I thought we were just going to have no peace that day or something. And, and yet, yet, to my surprise, one of those sweet old ladies sitting in front of us, she turned around, she extended her hand, and I thought, I misjudged this woman. She's nicer than I thought. Maybe she wasn't giving me the stink guy. Maybe that was just how her face looks. I don't know. And, and yet then she said to me, these words that I'll never forget that may sound innocuous, but if you had heard them with her tone of voice, you would have felt what we felt. She said to us, are you just visiting here or do you belong? Dang, right? Like burn. Like are you guys just visiting or do you belong here? I know what she was saying, right, that everybody knows what she meant. Are, are you members here? But what she really meant is, what it felt like she meant is that we didn't belong in her church, much less her pew. We did not belong. Belonging has been on my mind a lot this week. And I'm curious, have you ever been in a position where you were the outsider? Have you ever been in, a, in that place, you are sat in that seat I sat in that day where you were the Outsider looking in, you were just visiting. You did not belong um, where you were. Look, that's perfectly normal human behavior to have the line between insiders and outsiders. Every single human group that's ever been has had some kind of, of demarcation between who's in and who's out. Every, it's the oldest tradition known to humankind is the right of initiation. There's some kind of a ritual you go through that makes an outsider an insider. Every group, whether religious or not, every group knows how to make um, members out of non-members. But have you ever been that non-member? Have you ever sat in a room and been, it felt like you were the only non-member in a room full of members? Some of you might feel that way right now and you wish I would move on from this particular point. <laughs> uh, yeah, I get it. Um, so... I had that experience once, and not just at that church in St. Louis. The most vivid experience I remember of being the only member, the only non-member in a room full of members, was in the sticks of East Texas, and it was midnight. It's a true story. And I was surrounded by 20,000 delirious rednecks. And they sang, and they danced, and they had motions, and they kissed sometimes each other and I, I didn't know what was going on. They called it a midnight yell or something. I call it a, I call it a, I call it a, <laughs> I call it a cult, but they called it a midnight yell and I certainly did not belong. 
although I wore the only cowboy boots I had and the only brush popper shirt I could find, and I still did not belong among those delirious rednecks in College Station. <laughs> now, for some, when I talk about belonging and not belonging, the first thing you think about is religion because religion has made you feel like you don't belong. Like organized religion is notorious for drawing those very clear lines in the sand between who belongs and who doesn't. Every single religion that's ever been has had that line in the sand. Christianity, different versions of Christianity, different churches within Christianity, they all have their particular lines in the sand where you, very clearly you belong or you don't. There's insiders and there's outsiders. And some of you have experienced the dark side of that, the unwelcoming side of that. And I know that in the church, our rite of initiation is supposed to be baptism. That's supposed to be how we decide who belongs and who doesn't. And the church is by the ritual of baptism. But that's not really how it always works, is it? I mean, most of your non-religious friends, or you, if you're a non-religious or spiritual but not religious or skeptical, cynical person about religion anyway, you probably wouldn't say the people that belong in church are baptized people. You'd probably say the people that belong in church are holier than thou. People that belong in church are upstanding kind of goody-two-shoe types. And you don't really believe Christians are any better than anybody else, but you believe Christians believe they're better than anybody else. And if you really ask people that are on the outside of four walls like these, you probably hear that a lot, that um, churchgoers are better than or think they're better than the average person. They're well-behaved. They are on the straight and narrow path, and they don't deviate from that. Some of you have probably felt that in, in your life, that that's what it means to be a churchgoer. I, I know that's what we expect. Even Christians expect church-going people to be good people. That's why when they catch the serial killer that's killed half the town, everybody goes, I can't believe it. He was such a good church-going guy. Like, you don't expect that from a churchgoer because you expect churchgoers to be on their best behavior and to not do things like kill half the town or whatever. You don't expect that from church-going men and women. So that becomes the litmus test, the metric by which we judge insiders from outsiders. Here's the only problem with that. Here's my problem with that. I'm not always on my best behavior. I, I sin almost daily. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I sin every day. <laughs> but, but, I will, <laughs> I will say this. I will say this. This is the truth. There's some sin in my life that I never plan on quitting. I never plan on quitting some of the sin in my life. The hatred in my heart that I feel for the Golden State Warriors, it's never going to go away. I'm never going to stop. I don't care if hate is a sin. It feels good and I'm going to keep doing it. And that's not even the worst Part of it, it gets worse from there. Somebody's about to pass out. It, get, it gets worse. But listen, here's, here's the worst, one of the worst things in terms of unrepentant sin in my life. And I'm joking, but I'm half serious. Because Gio and I, one of our favorite things to do is go to the movies. I love, love going to the movies. I don't know why. It's nostalgic. That was my first job in high school. I wore the plastic suspenders with a bow tie and all that at Cinemark. Movies 8 in Texarkana, Texas. And that was my first job. And I love, I love going to the movies. I love when it's crowded and messy. And I love when people talk to the screen in a horror movie. Don't go in there. I love, like, I love when the floor is sticky and nobody knows why. You know, I don't know. I, I, I just, 
I really do love the experience, but there's one part of the movies I will never submit to, and that is the concession stand. I will never submit to the concession stand and their hiked up prices. Never will I pay $20 for a medium Coke and a medium popcorn. And I know the large costs a dollar more, and I'm never going to pay that either. That used to be my line when I wore the suspenders and the bow tie. I used to say that all the time, but I will never pay it. I will never submit to such an outrage. It's highway robbery. Popcorn, bucket of popcorn, $9. Come on. And so a moral, upstanding, Christian, church-going man like me only has one option, right? I mean, I, mean, I guess I could go without snacks for a couple hours. But does any of you think that's realistic? Is that really going to happen? No. I can't sit through Alien Covenant with no salt and sugar in my life. Like, I've got to have my snacks. And so y'all know what happens. If you ever see Pastor Gio and I, you know, giggling in the candy aisle at Walgreens, you know we're about to go to the movies. And we're breaking the law. Because there's no getting around it. We get two Cokes, two bottles of Coke. And two family-sized candies, hot tamales for me and raisinets for her and some trail mix or something else that has a little salt to it. And, and I just stuff all that stuff in my pockets. And this was easier when I had cargo pants. But now, now it's a little harder with these jeans she makes me wear. But I know, I know. But it's a problem because they check her purse now. They're on to us. And so I got to make it work. So if you see me walking like this, I'm trying not to make noise. You know what I'm saying? But nothing's, nothing's going to stop me from sinning that way. I don't even feel bad about it. I'm not going to repent. But what is it? It's stealing. The rules are the rules. It's posted. And by my calculation, based on how often we go to the movies and how much we steal every time, Gio and I steal about $2,000 a year from Regal Cinemas. So stealing, I don't know if you remember, makes the top ten list in the Old Testament. It's a pretty big deal. And according to the state of Texas, if you steal more than $1,500, it's a felony. So both of your pastors are felons. <laughs> but we have street cred now as a church, so that's good. <laughs> so we're legit. You can tell your friends. The tattoos are coming next. So... Here's the problem. If the standard of belonging at church is good behavior, who belongs? I certainly would not be standing here, certainly not up here, like some authority figure. When everybody knows my secret now, every time you see me at Walgreens, you'll be judging me. In the eyes of God, in the eyes of regal cinemas, I'm a thief. So who belongs at church? It's a question as old as the church itself. The first Christians knew exactly who belonged. For the very first Christians, it was Jewish people that believed in Jesus. Jewish people who were baptized in Jesus' name were the ones who belonged. It's very simple. All of the first Christians were Jewish people that believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And so there was no real confusion about who belonged in the earliest, earliest days of the church. In Acts 10, though, the apostle Peter, who was one of the three leaders of the early church, 
Peter starts to question. He starts to wonder. All these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people really like Jesus. And they really hear our message and they see us taking care of the poor and singing and being happy and they want to be a part of it. And yet, when we tell them what they have to do, they can't have pork anymore and they've got to abide by uh, Old Testament rules around all the food and, and relationships, sexuality, all the, the rules. And, you know, there's the cir- circumcision problem for adult men. That was an issue for many of the Gentile men. And they would just walk away. And so Peter starts to wonder if something needs to change. And so Peter tells the other Christians, the Jewish Christians, that he's beginning to question this policy of the early church. And in Acts 11, the other Christians are ticked off at Peter. It says, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, that's the Jewish Christians, criticized Peter. They accused him. You went into the home of the uncircumcised, non-Jewish people, and ate with them, and, and, and they're upset with him. So it says very clearly in uh, Acts 11.19 that they proclaimed the word only to Jews in the earliest days of the church. So for the first Christians, it was clear. If you didn't abide by the Old Testament law, if you didn't believe in the Old Testament and, and, and the God you find there, you didn't belong with Jesus. So in Acts chapter 8, just before that happened, it's probably happening about the same time, but they're happening in different places, we're introduced to this guy named Philip. And God tells Philip to go run on the desert road. And it sends him on a mission. Uh, I just want to tell you real quick, this is not the Apostle Philip. For those of you that are Bible nerds, this is not one of the 12. Uh, this is not Andrew's brother. This Philip in Acts is Philip the Evangelist. And he was one of the seven that was chosen, one of the seven leaders chosen by the uh, apostles to develop a program to feed the poor in Jerusalem. And he also had four daughters who were preachers, four daughters who prophesied to the, uh, testified to the gospel um, in, their, in their homes and in their churches. So that's who this uh, Philip was, not the apostle, but the evangelist. And this is the beginning. We're going to read this passage in Acts chapter 8 in three sections. So first we're going to read Acts 8, 26 through 29. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch. An important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake. Some of your Bibles will say Candace. It's not a name. It's a title, um, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So um, this uh, eunuch probably went to Jerusalem to worship. I want to tell you a little bit about him. This Ethiopian eunuch went to Jerusalem to worship. Um, He was a servant in the court of the queen of Ethiopia. Ethiopia was no small impoverished country then, like many people think of it today. Ethiopia was a large kingdom that took up most of northeastern Africa. And eunuchs were often entrusted with important work. They were slaves, but it was important work that eunuchs did in kingdoms like the Ethiopian kingdom. And he was uh, the right-hand man for the queen of Ethiopia. Now, this eunuch was probably not going to Jerusalem to worship in terms of being a devout 
Jewish person. He probably was going as a diplomat or an emissary. He was probably not a Jew himself, but there was a long-standing relationship between the Ethiopian people and the Jewish people. It's a relationship that went all the way back to the days of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, who you may remember, some of you, they had a little bit of a, a tryst. They had a, a fling. King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba had a romance. And during the time of their romance, Queen, uh, King Solomon found the time to convince the Queen of Sheba that the God of Israel is the one true God. And so she became a respecter of the Jewish faith and the Jewish God. The Queen of uh, Ethiopia in these times, in Acts 8, was a direct descendant of the Queen of Sheba. And so there was a long history there of relationship between the Ethiopian people and the Jewish people. That probably explains why the Queen of Ethiopia would send her right-hand man to worship in Jerusalem during the most holy time of the Jewish calendar, the time of Passover. So he was there at the same time that the drama was happening with Jesus, the crucifixion, his death and his resurrection. And so this eunuch, I want to talk about what eunuchs were. Eunuchs were quite common in kingdoms like this one. Eunuchs were probably orphaned at a very young age as babies or young children. And they would take the boys from these impoverished homes after they were orphaned. And around the age of eight, they would castrate the boys with no antiseptic and no anesthetic. It was an ugly, awful process that's been documented historically. Three out of four boys would survive. One out of four would die of infection following the um, operation. After uh, the, the castration, the boys would become slaves to the upper class or to the royalty, and that's what this uh, eunuch in Ethiopia was. Now, eunuchs were often given very important jobs, jobs that you would probably only trust a eunuch with, like your harem. If you were a king and you had a harem full of young gorgeous wives that were your wives or waiting for you, who would you choose to look after them and protect them? Would you choose the guy from 300 with all the abs and muscles, the soldier, the virile soldier guy, or would you choose Lord Varys from Game of Thrones? You'd probably choose Lord Varys from Game of Thrones. Am I right? All right, so Game of Thrones, a new season starting this summer, and another sin that I am not repenting from. So, uh, you're going to know all my secrets by the end of this uh, sermon. So eunuchs were often chosen for other jobs like um, food tasting. It was homeland security back then. And so who do you want tasting your food if you're the king? Do you want somebody who has mouths to feed of their own? Do you want somebody with a bunch of kids that are depending on them to come home alive? Or do you want somebody that has no one, somebody that won't be missed? So eunuchs were given that job. And in this case, the eunuch was given the job of the uh, oversight of the treasury for the queen. Again, it's the same kind of thing. Do you want somebody who has their own dependents, somebody who has their own mouths to feed, um, looking after your money, or do you want somebody who has no one looking after your money? And so this eunuch was given that charge from the queen of Ethiopia to look after her entire treasury. Eunuchs were valuable. Valuable servants, but they did not belong to God. They did not belong among the people of God. And that's not me talking. I'm not making that up or being mean. 
That's the Bible, the letter of the law talking here in Deuteronomy 21, verse 3. According to the Old Testament, any man who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting, no, no one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. This is the letter of the law. And this man, this eunuch, probably knew this. And so when he went to Jerusalem to worship, he was probably, he was definitely not allowed into the inner court where the other men went to worship. He was not there in, a, in, in the same way that other people were there to worship. He did not belong. He was probably used to not belonging given the life that he had lived. And this is what happens next in the story. In Acts 8, 30 to 35, it says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For the life was taken from his, from, for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Guys, let's stay on this screen for just a second, media folks. I want to look at this a little bit longer. I really want you guys to imagine hearing these words spoken by the prophet, Isaiah. But not with your own ears. I want you to hear them through the ears of this eunuch, if you can. If you can imagine being in his position. Imagine having his past, having his scars. Can you imagine hearing a story about a savior who was humiliated? A savior who was cut off from the people. Can you imagine hearing this story of a hero who stood helpless before the shearer? Can you imagine hearing this story about a Messiah who bore the scars that he did not deserve? If you were that eunuch who bore scars of your own you never asked for or deserved, who spent your life humiliated in isolation with no descendants like this hero had none, how would the story of Jesus sound to you? It would sound like coming home. For the first time in your life, you belong. For the very first time, you are welcome with this hero of this story you've never heard before. This hero took a punishment he didn't deserve, and so have you. Maybe you belong with him at last. Acts 8, 36 to 38, this is the last part of this passage. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. So they see the water, and the eunuch in his probably high-pitched, telltale voice of a eunuch said, look, there's some water. He said, what's to keep me from being baptized? What's to stop me? What's to prevent me? And he was not asking rhetorically. He really wanted to know if his condition disqualified him 
He wanted to know of his past made him unwelcome with Jesus and those who followed him. He wanted answers from Philip, whether or not he belonged. And listen, at this point in the story, Philip, he represented the church. He was the leader in this story. He, he was the pastor, the preacher. He could have said several things in response to his question. There were plenty of things that could have stood in the eunuch's way of being baptized. Philip could have said any number of things from quoting Deuteronomy 21 that I said before, that anyone who's been castrated has no place among the people of God. That was Philip's Bible. He could have quoted it and kept this man at bay. He could have put this man in his place. I love you, brother, but I love you, but sorry. Or, you know, he, he could have talked about the whole religion issue. I'm sorry, man, only, only Jews can be Christians. Jesus was a Jew, and all of us are Jews, and so I'm sorry, you're just not a Jew. And, and given the circumstances, we can't castrate you to make you a Jew, so I really, I hate it, man, but I love you, but. <laughs> or, maybe even more politically incorrect for our time, this wasn't the case then, but for us, we're very sensitive about issues of race, as we should be. But this was an African man. And if Philip had just willy-nilly taken him to the water and baptized him, he not only would have baptized, you know, the first castrated Christian and the first Gentile Christian, he also would have baptized the very first black Christian. None of the other Christians were black None of them were white yet either, so you know, it's, it's not like that. I'm just, they were all olive-skinned Palestinian Jews. So this would have been different. It would have been new. And in, in Acts 13.1, we actually learn that after the fact, after he becomes a Christian, we learn more about this eunuch. You know, he's talked about in other parts of the New Testament. This isn't the only appearance that he makes. He actually becomes a leader in the community. He, he becomes a preacher among the Christians. And his name is Simeon. Among the preachers and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas. Simeon called the black one. That's in Acts 13.1. I know, calm down, PC police, right? But like, listen, he was the only one. That's why they could say that. And they were brothers. They had trust by this time. And they, they trusted each other. And they could talk this way. And, and they were like, which one's Simeon? Uh, the black one. You know, like he was the only one. The only guy. You ever been the only white person in a room? You know what I mean? Some of y'all, some, some of you felt like you're the only one. And that's how it worked. And when there's trust, you can point things out about each other that you might not if you didn't know a person. But that's what they called Simeon. Simeon Niger, Simeon the black one. It's not PC, but for a while he was the only one. So when Simeon says, what is to prevent me, we need to know that Philip, being a good religious man, could have said any number of things. He could have said, you know, brother, let me pray about it and we'll get back to you. He should have said, he could have said, you know, Here's a connect card. If you could just fill out this connect card and turn it in, somebody, you'll get an email this week. And uh, he could have said, I'm, I'm going to start, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to start a committee on African baptisms, and we'll get back to you with our answer in, in six to nine months. He could have said any number of things, but Philip said nothing. Read the story. Philip said nothing. Christians 
Sometimes it's better to say nothing. Sometimes it's better to let your actions do all the talking. Because Philip just gets down out of that chariot and he walks with this eunuch, Simeon, toward the water. And as they're walking toward the water, these two men could not be more different, right? You got Philip, this olive-skinned Jewish father of four, and you've got Simeon, this dark-skinned African eunuch slave who just wants to belong somewhere for the first time. And when they go into the water, they could not be more different. But when they come out of the water, they are brothers and brothers for life. Bound by the blood of Jesus, they are blood brothers. And then Philip and Simeon are mentioned several other times in the New Testament. And that's not all that we know about Simeon's future either because history and tradition teach us that Simeon became a prolific preacher. Simeon became a powerful storyteller, an evangelist in Africa, in Ethiopia. Simeon, who was just a little bit more than a slave. Simeon, this fraction of a man in the eyes of the world. Simeon, who was condemned by parts of Scripture, the The first African Christian became the first African preacher, and he took Jesus to Ethiopia. And he introduced Christianity to the African continent for the first time. And today, because of Simeon, there are more Christians in Africa than there are people in the United States. By 2025, Africa will be the epicenter of Christianity in the world projected to be 633 million Christians in Africa in 2025. And it all began with one. One man riding alone in his chariot, reading the Bible and wondering if he belonged with God. Some of you have been there where he was. And you wonder if something in your past disqualifies you. You wonder if something in your present means you cannot belong. Something in your lifestyle or your personality or your character or your circumstances that disqualify you. We serve communion at the end of every service and once in a while somebody will come forward to have communion and and they'll either have their hands like this or they'll have their arms crossed like this. And this is their way of saying that I want to be a part of this, but I'm not allowed to be a full part of this. But I do want to participate, so I want to come forward and and be like everyone else. But someone along the way has told me that I'm not allowed to partake of the the bread and the, the cup. The body and the blood of Jesus is not for me because I'm unworthy because of something I've done to separate me from the people of God. And it's not resolvable and there's no fix for it. It is what it is. I've been told I don't belong. I'm here, but I don't belong. And usually it has something to do with some sin in the past, usually something like divorce or something like that. And some church has told them that they they cannot, they're not worthy of taking communion anymore. And I can't tell you how many times I've just wanted to take their hands and just rip them down from their chest and take that scarlet X that they're making off their chest because this is not what Jesus came to do. Christians should talk less and act more. Act more like Jesus, serving those who the world says is not, are not worthy. Even serving those who some churches say are not worthy. And sometimes even I've seen, you know, our church 
Stand in the way of people feeling like they fully belong. Some of y'all have been waiting for the right chapter group to start, and we don't have the right group for you to fit right in, and you're just kind of hanging in, and you're saying, I'm here, but I don't know if I belong fully yet. Listen, that is not God. That is not Jesus. That's the church and our human limitations standing in the way for a moment. Give us time. But listen, God says you belong. That's the miracle and the message of the gospel is that our Savior died a convict. He died on the cross a criminal in the eyes of the world. His closest friends were prostitutes and thieves like me. And, and his best spokesman was the guy who used to kill Christians in the streets before his own conversion. The first African Christian, the first African follower of Jesus wasn't a man of great distinction, but a eunuch, a man who was cut off from the people, a man who bore scars, a man who never really belonged. The reason any of us are here today, the reason I'm up here today, a thief preaching the gospel without being struck by lightning or without the roof caving in on us is because of Jesus. Jesus says you belong, I belong. We belong no matter what we've done or left undone in the past. No matter what secrets your past may hold. No matter even if you're condemned in some way by some letter of some law. You belong here. Not because of me or not because we're a nice church. Because of Jesus you belong with God. No questions asked. No words need to be spoken. You belong you are welcome. You are a child of God. You're his son. You're his daughter. You belong. You belong with his people. You belong in this place. You belong under the waters of baptism. You belong at the communion table because of Jesus. You belong and you have a purpose, a high and holy calling. To share the gospel, the good news of the hope of Christ with those around you, even if you haven't lived the right kind of life so far, you belong and you have a purpose. You have a reason for being. You are part of God's plan, and he's simply waiting for you to say yes. During communion today, I'm not going to be serving communion over there like I usually do. I'm going to be standing right here by this water. In our earlier service, two men came forward. One of them was baptized. The other one received a reminder of his baptism. I don't re-baptize you if you've already been baptized, but I'll give a little water and remind you that you're baptized, that you belong to God. We're going to do the same in this service. If you've never been baptized before, come talk to me. There's nothing to prevent you. There's nothing standing in your way. There's no limitations to the grace of God. If you've been baptized before and it feels like forever since that happened and you've lived a whole different life, then maybe you should have come forward. Let's talk. Let's get on the right path. Let's remind you whose you are. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. It is all we need. It is all we're here to proclaim. It is the only reason any of us are welcome and any of us are worthy. Lord, I pray for the courage of those in this room who are on the fence of faith or those who are thinking of making a decision for the first time to put you at the center of their lives. Remind us that we are yours, that nothing else matters, and that everything else makes sense when we just submit to that simple reality that we are yours and we're created with a purpose. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.